Welcome to Views from the North, a Canadian rates and macro podcast. This week, I'm joined by Dave Moore, also known as Demo around these parts, from BMO's London Fixed Income Sales Team. This episode is titled, Growth Worries Ramp Up. I'm Ben Reitzis, and welcome to Views from the North. Each episode, I will be joined by members of BMO's FIC Sales and Trading Desk to bring you perspectives on the Canadian rates market and the macro economy. We strive to keep this show as interactive as possible by responding directly to questions submitted by our listeners and clients. We value your feedback, so please don't hesitate to reach out with any topics you'd like to hear about. I can be found on Bloomberg or via email at benjamin.reitzes at bmo.com. That's benjamin.reitzes at bmo.com. Your input is valued and greatly appreciated. Dave, welcome back to the show. Uh, it has been a while, but uh, you you changed locations, and, and uh, now you're you've moved from from Hong Kong to London. So there was a period there where I I, I couldn't quite get you, but uh, I'm glad to have you back on the show. It's great to be back. There's been a, a wee while since we last spoke, and obviously the the world's changed a lot since then. Uh, but transitioning from both uh, from Asia back to London, as well as um, roles from trading into sales, it's a uh, it's been a, a fairly spicy. Uh, three months or so for me, but uh, it's great to be back on. Glad to have you. And I, I'm sure the uh, transition will work out well. I have I have good confidence in that. Uh, I'm going I'm to start with the Bank Canada. I mean, we, we had their uh, policy decision last week. They surprised with a 50 basis point rate hike instead of a 75 basis point move. And they they sounded much more concerned about the growth outlook. That that was one of the big drivers behind the, uh, the, the, the surprisingly smaller move. It seems as though Governor Macklem maybe didn't have the updated growth forecast when he spoke at, uh, to the media post-IMF. So that that might be one reason why uh, he, he still sounded hawkish at that time. Uh, they just didn't didn't realize growth would be as, as, as bad as it looks like it's going to be. And then on top of that, it wouldn't shock me either if, if they just kept working on the math the bank did on uh, on on the impact on mortgages, because they have all the micro data there. They, they see everything and, and they see how big of an impact and, and how many households would struggle under the, the bigger rate hike. And, and that that could have had an impact as well, I think. And so uh, as much as I, I hate being wrong in, in our call and, and the fact that uh, that they went 50 instead of 75, like we called for, uh, d- does annoy me. Uh, I, I do think 50 basis points was probably the more appropriate move uh, at this point, given given uh, all, all the stuff I mentioned. And, and we already, I mean, BMO already has a, a recession uh, in the forecast for Canada. So growth, growth is going to be pretty soft and the bank isn't quite there yet from a growth forecast perspective, but they did admit that uh, it's kind of either way in the first half of next year, they have growth pretty much at zero for, from Q4 to Q2, which is very, very close to our call. And in their text of the monetary policy report, they noted that growth could could very well be negative over that period. And so clearly they are much more concerned about the growth outlook and uh, inflation, while still important, undoubtedly, not the sole factor driving policy anymore. Uh, the bank does expect that that softer growth profile means weaker inflation through the course of 2023. We'll see if that plays out, but for now, that's that's the narrative I think they're going to go with. Looking forward, we still have uh, two 25 basis point rate hikes for the bank, so uh, one 25 beat move in December, 
one twenty-five beat move in January. Uh, there, there's still some risk that they go fifty in, in December and then maybe pause after that. Uh, they just front load a little bit more. Uh, I, I am getting a, a very strong reading at the moment for uh, for October CPI. Uh, not not quite finalized the forecast at this point, but it's still pretty strong, solid, and that that might put a little bit more pressure on the bank. But we'll see how the rest of the data do. We'll get uh, we'll, we'll get jobs in a couple of days, and uh, there, there are a number of other data points before before the December meeting. So uh, still still plenty of ways to go. Uh, it is Wednesday afternoon, four o'clock Eastern time. So we just got the Fed here, and they didn't follow the follow the path that the Bank of Canada laid out. Uh, they they did not sound more dovish. They didn't surprise on that side. If anything, I, I mean Powell noting that that rates could go higher than they thought at the last meeting uh, was, was certainly more hawkish and. and while the pace of rate hikes, he, he noted, will probably slow either at the next meeting or the meeting after, uh, it still keeps the door wide open to 75 basis points at the uh, at, at, at the December meeting. And I think uh, the market wanted a little bit more dovishness than that. But for the Fed, the focus is still very much on inflation. I think, why don't I bring in, in Dave here? I think that divergence is, is a good starting point. Um, how do you view the, uh, the, the U.S. backdrop, the policy backdrop in rates versus, versus Canada at the moment? Yeah, I think... Um you know, we were talking about this last time we spoke is that there was going to be a transition away from, you know, economies going side by side and moving more towards, you know, their own paths. And we are seeing that. And obviously, Canada was one of the early movers when it came to hiking rates, both in terms of when they did it and also in terms of size uh, of, of move. And so there's there was always that kind of propensity for it to to be the first mover, or, or at least to what people are called pivot or, or slow down, I think you're right on the mortgage side, and I think that they obviously are are very sensitive to that. But I don't think a lot of press is is kind of given to the home equity line of credit side of things because it's just not something as as a credit tool that's often used outside of Canada, um, and where you have such kind of large amounts of debt albeit secured by equity in the property that is linked to a floating rate. And uh, if you're using that uh, and it has a balance, I think that that's got much more of an impact, at least immediately to the consumer than, you know, the the fixed rates, whether it's five-year fixed or, you know, the transition of floating rates into fixed rates. And I think the data suggests that a lot of uh, consumers have moved from floating into fixed, at least from what I can gather. But I think that we are sitting now in a place where the the underlying uh, balance sheets of the consumer could get quite stretched, particularly when I look at the home equity line of credit side of things. And I think the bank are, are very sensitive to that. And while they probably wear a little bit more inflation, oil prices and energy prices up is generally good for, for Canada. Uh, might be bad for the economy, but it's, it's uh, sorry for the consumer. But it's generally good for for you know the the West Coast and for businesses. And if lumber is doing well, that obviously uh, bolsters further economic growth. But if the growth numbers are starting to look a little bit scary low, uh, I think they're more likely to wear um, a little bit more inflation, tailor their language around the growth outlook, and probably not be so vocal in terms of the housing debt but we'll have that front and center in their mind. I think one of the main divergences are between the US and Canada is uh, just down to the, the liability structure 
of most people. Uh, and no, I'm not speaking to the corporate level here. I'm, I'm talking to personal balance sheets uh, and discretionary spending choices made by the consumer. You have in the US, you know, 30 year mortgages, whereas Canada, we've got five year fixed as kind of our standard four year or five year rolling. You have the home equity line of credit, which isn't something that really is that available in, in the US. I don't see an instance in which there's going to be material house price uh, or housing shock in the US without a material labor market shock. And the Fed's not going to push the economy to the point where labor market gets really badly beaten up. They have to over tighten. They have to try and get inflation under control for a few reasons. But I think one of the, the main points now is that the consumer, the general public know Powell's name. Uh, and that was from Trump's presidency. He made Powell known. And for the longest time, central bank policymakers would kind of act in the shadows in, in terms of the general public. And the decisions they made would be swift and they would be you know, cared about by people in our industry um, and people in you know, our investors, our clients. But the general public probably didn't have much of an idea uh, what these central bankers did. They, they probably didn't know the central bankers' names. And now you have a name and now you have inflation. And so it's a dual-edged sword for the US in particular because the consumer knows Powell's name. The consumer knows that he does something somewhere that changes something that might impact them somehow to the depth of their knowledge will vary. He is now a known entity. And before where the Fed could get away with being a little bit more liberal with their language because it was you know, select participants in terms of the global population that was paying attention to it, I don't think they have that luxury anymore. And that while they wouldn't want to admit it, I think will have an impact on the language they use and, and the decisions that they make and will likely force them to stay the course for longer because if rate hikes are the tool to solve the inflation problem and the, the general public know this or, or believe this to be true, the minute that he stops doing that or the Fed stops doing that, they might be seen to be you know pandering to the banking community, filling the purses of the of the wealthy and and creating a bit of a a bit of an issue there. Now that's a, an outlier risk. I'm not sure if that happens and that the general public really care that much, but it's a risk that just hasn't existed in such a scale that it does today. And so that's why I think that you'll continue to see some divergence so long as inflation is is material and has a hold in the US, the the Fed will almost be forced uh, into action or maintaining action because they're now known. They're just he is known. The Fed are now known, uh, and that will become um, really quite quite difficult. Yeah, I I I, I hear you. I mean, it, it's uh, a, a pretty notable divergence between the two countries is is potentially coming. I, I see how the U.S. is is meaningfully more resilient to higher rates than Canada. Our, our as you mentioned, our, our leverage ratios are just that much higher. It's just that much more punishing on the Canadian economy when rates go up, and so it is going to put the bank in a bit of a, a difficult spot. In that, as I mean, if if the Fed, let's say, gets to five or north of five percent, uh, how high does the bank have to go to make sure the Canadian dollar doesn't really weaken too much and drive inflation that much higher? And 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 can it even do that? Maybe at some point, you know what, the bank will just choose to accept a weaker Canadian dollar because you know what, our, our economy can handle that rates at uh, north of four and a half percent or something along those lines if, if the Fed continues to move higher. 
that'll be a dilemma that the Bank of Canada uh, could have to face at some point in 2023. Fortunately, though, we're not there yet. What is the European investor base saying about the Bank of Canada surprise last week? Uh, was there much chatter or did it just fly under the radar given that uh, we, we are going to see or we, we have seen the Fed was on, on deck next and uh, that, that was a much uh, bigger story? There's an obvious kind of undertone around Canada now over the last maybe 18 months or so uh, where a lot of clients and investors who may have been active in the past are, are less so because there's there's opportunity sets away from Canada. So perhaps their focus just isn't as deeply ingrained in the Canadian monetary and fiscal policy landscape as as you and I or or uh, our locals back in, in, in Canada. But uh, I think one of the, the kind of the notable comments from from those that I speak to here is that the bank had to do something the the bank will likely be forced to do more in terms of pivot more relative to the US but the opportunity set for for Canadian trading is like from a discretionary standpoint I'm obviously I'm going to exclude those who have natural liabilities in Canadian dollar and and are placing those dollars in assets the discretionary account base, the discretionary choices that will be made likely don't go to Canada just because the dynamic has changed so, so much uh, in the last little bit. Uh, when I look at, you know, say Canada versus US from a, a rates trade, we had Canada fives versus US fives go from essentially zero or positive, that is, you know, match yield to 70 basis points negative, that is Canada through the US. And that signaled almost four and a half sigma on the six-month average. And so something like that in the past would have traditionally brought out a lot of activity, a lot of activity, uh, just purely because mean reversion trades were the flavor and that's how a lot of people were trained and you would fade it. And if you look at the move now since the surprise, and we'll talk to that in a second, but the surprise, you know, we're call it maybe two sigma on the six month. And so if you'd done that fade and thought at four and a half, this is worth a fade and held it and kept onto it, you would have, you know, obviously you would lost your your amounts now because we're minus what, minus 80 or 80 basis point through the US. But we're still from a Sigma perspective, we're not nearly as overstretched as where we were uh, in the initial move. But when I, when, you know, when we talk to clients and we, we talk about surprises, I look at it from a what is the median survey saying versus what actually happens. And, you know, over, let's call it, last 20 years or so, um, of all the, the Bank of Canada's that, you know, where we have a median forecast available and, and, and their action, like call it 160 meetings in the past, there's really only been 13 instances where the survey deviated from actual policy. And, you know, the, the most recent action was one of them. But 92% of the time, the surveys are pretty much bang on. And that's just one of the risks that we now face is that we're looking at history to try and predict what happens next. And we tend to do that. We tend to try and gauge what where to go based on where we've been. And, and right now, we just we haven't seen action like this ever. We have seen periods of, of large-scale inflation. Of, of course we have, but not when central banks have been so active in the market. You know, QE, QT, and, and every iteration of, of central bank policy over the last since decades since the global financial crisis 
it's all new. This is all new to to us. It's all new to financial markets history. And so when we look back and say, well, okay, we've seen this type of behavior before, or we've seen divergence economically before, and tried to use that as a, as a measure or a gauge, it's just not as relevant or it's, it's not relevant at all. And, and this ends up sidelining so many people, because if you have the opportunity set in other perhaps deeper markets, and, and I, I mean that in, in the greatest respect and deference for Canada, Canadian bond market isn't as deep as the US, it isn't as deep as some of the Europeans, but you're seeing dislocations in the US and you're seeing dislocations in Europe, which are far more extreme and probably warrant active allocation into those trades rather than going into, into Canada. When you have week over week volatility, um, say in, in Canada twos versus the US of 31 basis points. Right, like that's the change. We've tightened thirty-one beeps to the U.S. over the last week. That's so material from a, a risk sizing perspective that you just have other options out there that won't sh- don't have the same amount of inherent volatility in them relative to historical volatility norms that just don't blow you out of the water intraday. And I think that's where I think that's where the the international community now lie. It's like. They have the choice to do many markets. Why would you? Why would you allocate a, a large portion of your capital to Canada when the risk is just? It's just so big, and the moves are so va- they're so vast. Uh, you hit the nail right on the head. Uh, there's been, I mean, there, there's uh, we're seeing still very very good activity here, but uh, just from a global perspective, Canada is not. Uh, uh, not not as uh, intensely followed as it as it would have been a few years ago, and you're exactly right. When 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 U.S. Treasuries, when ten year yields are moving ten basis points on a on a Tuesday, when nothing happens, uh, it it's hard to to get too excited about about Canada and that kind of environment. There there's there is money to be made in those bigger, deeper liquid markets, and and when they calm down eventually you'll you'll get more attention paid to canada uh for sure and and i get that from an international perspective there's still uh real money activity still and then domestic activity here is still still very strong so that 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 is definitely a positive but it is clear you're exactly right that uh uh from a from a global perspective canada is just not as exciting when when you have such high volatility and that that's that's the key word uh volatility is 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 still extreme and uh given the uncertainty around policy and and how that's probably not going away uh i'd i'd say for at least about 6 months maybe 8 months the middle of next year i think we'll have at least more clarity on the inflation profile going forward that 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 should help and then how sticky core inflation is but in the meantime uh, get get used to these uh, crazy wild days with uh, with rates swinging back and forth consistently. But that, I think that's really valid, right? Is that I'm quite simple when I think of volatility. You know, I, I don't trade options, and I, I've very rarely have been active in in vol either. You know, as an end user or in terms of pricing, it's just not something I'm I'm really that familiar with from a, a from a really deep technical standpoint so i like to bring volatility to uh, its most simplest terms and something that people can really get their heads around you, you speak to the intraday ranges in uh, in in yields and you take canada twos for example and let's just say in really simple terms the high yield versus the low yield of that day the intraday high and the intraday low that range if you look at the last year, so year to date, so we're not going in November now, year to date, 
we've had 24% of this year, Canada twos have had more than 10 basis point range intraday. And uh, the last time we had this type of volatility was in 2008. And uh, year to date, 2008, so the equivalent date uh, to where we are now, um, it was at 28% for the year of 10 basis point or more intraday volatility. And then from 2012 to 2021, this is including COVID, 2012 to 2021, the average, <laughs> the average amount of time where there was more than 10 basis points intraday range is around 3%, 2 or 3% across the entire decade. So you have people coming into this market who have 10 years worth of experience, a decade worth of experience, and they've only seen 10 basis point or more ranges in Canada twos, 3% of their career, 3%. Like, we were, I remember um, Levent here at Bank Montreal was uh, was doing a call and he's talking about uh, how he looks at the markets and how he thinks about volatility. And uh, he, he said something like, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, he thinks the market has a fever when the, the VIX has an absolute value of more than 25. And so I thought, okay, that would be an interesting way to look at things. And, and let's look at, you know, from 2006 or 2007 until until now. And, and, and really, what does that look like? And uh 61% of this year, VIX has been above 25. 100% of October, 100% of May. And the you know the last time we saw this was during COVID. It was similar uh, this time uh, in 2020. 67% of the year, the VIX had been above 25. But if you go back to 2012 and we take that entire decade, even including the 67% like year-to-date number for you know, to include the COVID time, um, the average has been 8%. That's with a 67% number for one of those years or one-tenth of those years. If we strip out the 2020 number, the VIX was above 25 from 2012 to 2021, X2020, 2% of the time. So we have people now who are trading these markets with a decade worth of experience who have never seen anything like this who have no idea what this is like and don't don't know how to trade it, don't know how to think about it. And I think that exacerbates the problem. I think that makes things much, much worse. And uh, it's something that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very cognizant of because in the past, and as I said, people would step in and defend the, the top and the bottom side of a range or step in where they think that the value makes sense to be long or short. And now what ends up happening is these price moves happen so swiftly uh, and so aggressively and no one, we're not seeing that defense, or it just doesn't take as much size to cause a lot of pain or a lot of gain, and depending on your perspective. But as a bond, like as a rates person, I tend to think of things in, from pain rather than gain. I leave that for you know people maybe in, in the equity side. They, they they're fairly optimistic and they do well when the world is doing well, and and bond investors tend to do well when the world isn't doing so well. So I say that from a pain perspective. You can be stopped out three or four times over in a day on some of these moves. And so I think that with that, combined with lower subscription, combined with more electronification, with more activity in futures rather than in the cash markets, it just will exacerbate and get worse until there's a semblance of control, a semblance of stability whether it's in the inflation profile or we accept that the, the, the next part of this cycle is, is more recessionary, that job losses are, uh, are imminent. And, you know, once we get through that 
kind of that phase of the cycle, then hopefully things will will settle down and we can go back to somewhat more stable, more normal markets. But the hope is is that that will be a move perhaps away from autonomy uh, from a, like a, an electronic or algorithmic trading perspective and more towards autonomy at, at the human level uh, where uh, investors, dealers, traders are are given more to be able to to manage this without it being so punitive in terms of holding assets on the balance sheet. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll see if we get there. But uh, you, you mentioned that I mean, a, a decade of of, of traders uh, just not not really having experienced this uh, this type of volatility, and and I mean that's what happens when you have uh, ten plus years of rates close to zero and 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 massive QE uh, through through large chunks of that time, and and now you're getting the opposite. And and so uh, if, if if central banks were, were volatility dampeners from from the kind of financial crisis easing period until through the end of COVID pretty much, uh, it's it's going the other way now as, as they tighten policy and then they pull back on all their uh, all the, all their uh, liquidity provisions. So it, it's probably going to be bumpy for a while, maybe not as bumpy as it has been this year, but definitely bumpy. Uh, one of the last thing you mentioned was was recession, and uh, I'm going to kind of change change gears a little bit here because we, we we get the Canadian fiscal update on on Thursday tomorrow, and and nothing's really expected there. I don't think it's going to be a big event at this point, though. I guess you really never know. But the government has said they're they're not going to work counter to the Bank of Canada's battle against inflation. So that 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 that's a relatively clear sign that they're not going to put any spring any big measures on us. No, no, no new big spending measures, though I'm sure there'll, there'll probably be some goodies for some people. But it, it doesn't preclude that they could still spend more money and, and put more stimulus in place uh, in next year's budget. If we're right about our forecast and then there is a recession at that time, it might be hard for them to refrain from stimulus. We could already see inflation pulling back a little bit. So it gives them a little bit more license to, to, to spend more. We'll, we'll, we'll see on that front. But why don't you give us a little bit of flavor on uh, on what's gone on in the UK over the past couple of months and, and how that's a cautionary tale for the rest of us. And um, we're, we're coming up on like 30 minutes. So let's keep it to like two to three minutes. And then we'll, we'll talk about trade ideas. Yeah, I think uh, it's uh, chaos seems to follow the moors. Uh, we moved to London, 2018 Brexit, 2020 COVID in in Hong Kong, and now uh, you know what looked like economic collapse in the UK when we return. Pretty much within two weeks, uh, there'll be a petition for for the moors to be taken out of uh, of the UK imminently. So best of luck, Canada. I, I think, but um, it's I think is really important what's happened here and uh, it. It's a shot across the bow to both the fiscal and the monetary policymakers that their words carry a lot of weight. You can't go in uh, with policy in either fiscal or monetary that is so clearly divisive and it's so clearly wrong. The markets will tell you, but the move is exacerbated here because of the the structure of the of the fixed income market and uh, the general same way risk that tends to happen uh, particularly further out the curve but I do think that it's been an, uh, a really important point and and I think you said exactly right that the government and the monetary policymakers will have to align a little closer. Now, they're not going to be in each other's pockets and their mandates are different. And I don't see 
any way in which um, there isn't some spending or you know a hat tip to, to spending in, in 2023, regardless of what the, the bank is trying to do, because the mandate of the government, when, as you say, there is no real near-term risk of an election, as we probably thought that here in the UK too, uh, and now we've went through, we're on our third prime minister. Uh, so the might not have the election, but there certainly has been a fair amount of change. But I do think that it, it, it does show just how quickly the market will price this now and how much the market is listening. And I, I, I think that there's very little wiggle room for mistake when it comes to language, when it comes to policy, uh, and when it comes to perception. And I think that's one of the the biggest pieces here is the perception. What the UK now probably requires is a, a period of balance and patience in terms of both fiscal and monetary policy, where we can collectively take a, a sigh of relief and look at the markets calming down, allow financial institutions buy and sell side to get their houses in order to ensure that they're they're well positioned that decade of of low of low volatility uh, and almost zero rates tends to lead to larger positions and leverage and so there was a natural unwinding of some of that there is a structural risk in in the UK that is you know is quite unique to 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 here under the LDI uh, side of things that you probably don't see elsewhere but you still have the risk that policymakers, when they speak, they can they can move the markets, and if their their speech is, is not well thought out, or it's it seems kind of off piste or going rogue, uh, the markets will tell you so. Politicians are always well thought out, though. Come on. <laughs> I, well, and I think that there's an element of I, I laugh. We were talking about this today, but I I think that we have to accept that they know as as much as they can know to make the decisions that they make and they make the best decisions they can with the information they have. Like I think that's rational behavior and that's true for, for politicians as it, as it is for uh, monetary policymakers, whether they're right or not is, is, is different. Like that's, that's, you know, depends on your lean, but there's this almost um, condescension against against the policymakers thinking that they're they're not really sure what they're doing and I, I just don't buy that the i think that there's some very smart people doing the best they can with the information they have but when you go off piste as we have seen here in uh, or go rogue as we have seen here in the uk uh, it will it will not go unnoticed and there will be a very large impact to it no one saw this this coming though no one yep. saw this type of price action it was that, it was wild. That's that's for sure true, and and yeah, they. I mean, they're doing the best they can with the information they have. The problem is the information is not always that great. And, and <laughs> yes. that's that's the secret. That's that's what makes my job as hard as it is. Uh, the data we have yeah. just sometimes isn't great, and that that's the way the cookie crumbles. We do the best we can with what we got, uh, and, exactly. and so on and so forth. Uh, all right, let's let's get your favorite trade ideas here. You can all Canada based, of course. Just you can give me one. Give me your give me your highest conviction idea. It would be uh, fading Canada, US, probably in the five-year sector, not right here. I think maybe five to 10 basis points from here, you, you start dipping the toe and then just be like an, a net outright long position in the in the front end just generally makes a ton of sense when you look at some of these rates and you look at some of these levels. Now, it depends on the type of client and the kind of, a type of account base or investor that we're talking about. But if you have liabilities that, 
are coming in the door, whether they're, you know, perpetual liabilities like a, a pension fund or you've relinquished a physical asset and now you're long the, the underlying currency. And so you're not exactly reliant on the funding markets to 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 make these trade decisions. I think some of those front end trades just just outright longs, not even looking at curve, not making it overly fancy, are are making a, a lot of sense, particularly in Canada. Even after the the price action that we've seen, I'd be looking for for opportunities to dip by and and try and create a nice scaled long position across various tenors that almost like a ladder type structure where I just create a really nice accrual stream in the book. That would be how I'd be positioning right now for sure. All right. I, I, I like the Canada US angle. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a little more focused further out the curve and in the long end, probably towards a hundred basis points. I think it'd start, start maybe at 90, uh, mm-hmm. 90 through and then, and then at a hundred uh, where we've only been once uh, there, there you can, you can, I think put on a, a, a bigger position there. My only, my only concern is again, like I, there, there are a fair amount of people looking at this, uh, and I'm, we're clearly not the only ones. And, and so positioning isn't, isn't there yet. Cause I don't think we've reached those levels, but, uh, if, if we start to see positioning build up ahead of these kind of extreme levels, then that, that'll be a big red flag that, uh, we could, we could definitely pop to, uh, to new extremes. Yeah, I just think it's a defensible idea, right? It's a defensible trade where you look at it and you you see the divergence of the economies. Eventually, they will align, whether it's a three or six month lag, they will start to have at least uh, some form of co-integration. It's not going to be perfect, but it'll be something. And having the risk on for that event makes a lot of sense to me. And it's something that I think that you can defend from a from a theoretical, fundamental and technical perspective. But it is it's not going to be a straight line. It's not going to be an obvious entry point. And there could just be uh, like that last flush out of positions. And it, it, at that point, that's where I think it's, uh, if you get that kind of last whizzy feel of just gappy, grabby, chaotic type trade, uh, that's probably the time to to get involved. I'm just not sure if we're there yet. All right, uh, Dave, on that note, thank you for coming on the show this week. Much appreciated. And uh, now that you're you're settled, we'll uh, we'll have to have you on again soon. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening to Views from the North, a Canadian rates and macro podcast. I hope you'll join me again for another episode. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. For full legal disclosure, visit bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.